Welcome to the Vincentian Heritage Podcast, a selection of readings on Vincentian history, spirituality, and praxis to help sustain the members of the Vincentian family in our shared efforts to live out the mission, vision, and values of St. Vincent de Paul. This episode's reading is entitled Vincent de Paul and Money, published in 2005 in Vincentian Heritage Journal, Volume 26, Number 1. It is read by the author, Reverend John Reibold. In the courtyard of the Vincentian Mother House in Paris, standing above the main entry, is one of my favorite statues of Vincent de Paul. We see him there, life-sized, gazing on those who enter with his arms down and his large hands open but empty. This gesture is obscure and rare in religious art. One example is above the entry of the Cathedral of Autun, a sculpture of Jesus the judge in the same attitude. Perhaps it is a gesture of welcome, Jesus welcoming the visitor to his house, to heaven. But I'd like to think of Vincent's gesture as having financial implications. There he is, son of landowning peasants and lord of St. Lazar, through whom millions of livres passed for the service of the needy, with none of it sticking to his hands. Even in the final months of his life, September 1660, finances were one of his concerns, as an examination of his last letters will show. This gesture contrasts with many others that have become associated with Vincent. There are two in particular. The first is Vincent with the babies, a sort of Santa Claus figure, round, chubby, kindly, even safe. The second is Vincent the Preacher, generally with a crucifix in his upraised hand. Which gesture really depicts the genuine Vincent? We can make up our mind individually about this. My interest here is to focus, however, on the topic of Vincent and money, his world, his practice, and his theory. Economic Structures of Vincent's Time One of the temptations in any study of Vincent de Paul, as it is of Jesus and other great figures, is to mold him into the person we want him to be, Santa Claus, missionary, whatever. Vincent, to be clear about it, was a male, born in France, in a particular time and place, who became a Catholic priest. This implies that he lived within certain structures, religious, social, political, and, for our purposes, economic. Although he worked to reform some structures, others were imposed on him, principally the following four. First, the French lived largely upon earnings made from agriculture. Historians of early 17th century France estimate the population at about 20 million, probably less. Out of those, 15 million lived in the country. In addition, there were about 2 million artisans of various kinds, both rural and urban. This total of 17 million people, designated the third estate, generally lived from the land. Their labor supported the 3 million above them, the clergy and the nobles. The clergy, the first estate, and the nobles, the second estate. The whole forming a theoretical pyramid 
with fixed membership and obligations, similar in some ways to the caste system in Hindu societies. A surprising statistic is, however, that the ownership of land is estimated to have been nearly equally divided between peasants and other landowners. Vincent's family belonged to this class of landowning peasants. Serfdom had been eliminated from France by Vincent's day, although many unfortunates were effectively bound to the land through chronic indebtedness. The land that the French peasants worked provided, in the first place, crops for food and drink from fields, meadows, and orchards. But it also gave wood products and wild game from forests and scrublands, minerals from mines, and pasture for domestic animals bred for work, food, and their products, such as hides, wool, and horns, from horses, cattle, swine, poultry, and sheep. In addition, fish came from the sea, rivers, lakes, or ponds. As a general rule, farming peasants had additional skills beyond tilling the soil. Some were obliged to transport their goods to market and even to manufacture the means of transportation, and so developed as wheelwrights, harness makers, carters, and porters. Others finished and prepared their produce, such as butchers, millers, coopers, tanners, weavers, and rope makers. They were thus laying the groundwork for small cottage industries. Many peasants, unfortunately, could produce only enough for their own consumption. By contrast, luckier or more industrious ones would be able to set aside a percentage for trade or sale in local fairs or distant markets in which they often participated. Some rural dwellers enjoyed certain advantages by working for the lords as tenant farmers or servants in their country chateau. Despite periods of good weather and a concomitant increase of productivity, French peasants generally lived on the brink of famine because of occasional bad weather, crop diseases, and animal pests. One of the greatest causes of disaster, however, was taxation, the second important financial structure. In general, all land belonged to the Lord, the Seigneur, and anyone who worked the land, whether they had unencumbered title to it or not, had to pay residual duties to the landlord. The produce of the land was likewise taxed, but the regions of France had various systems of taxation, with some peasants paying collectively as part of their village and others paying individually. The church, too, had rights to the fruits of labor, collecting annual tithes, ostensibly to support their pastors and to care for the poor of the parish. Regrettably, large portions of that income went to support the lavish lifestyle of careless pastors. All that was bad enough. But to make matters worse, neither the church nor the nobility paid taxes themselves, apart from feudal duties on some properties. Because peasants found it extremely difficult to get ahead, many abandoned their farms. This iniquitous system led to migration to the cities 
and the increasing pauperization of the countryside throughout Vincent's life. The third element was the feudal social structure of peasants, nobles, and clergy. The theory of the three estates worked well in an ideal order, but the fact was that the framework of social mobility was not evolving to accommodate the changes that the Renaissance introduced. It may seem that society was divided simply between rural and urban, rich and poor, but the reality was complex. In the cities, literally hundreds of specialties were developing in the professions, in manufacturing and in services, generally destined to support the upper classes. Just naming some of them will give us a sense of the vibrancy of life in Vincent's day. In the trades, think of workers in wood, metal, stone, glass, pottery, as well as laborers in, constru in construction, such as plasterers, painters, plumbers, and roofers. Others worked in personal adornment, clothing and furnishings, as well as the luxury trade, such as goldsmiths, jewelers, silk weavers, shoemakers, fan makers, and milliners. Other professional jobs developed as well, such as portrait and landscape painters, musicians, engravers, map makers, and printers. Architects and engineers always had a role, as did an increasing army of civil servants, money changers, and entrepreneurs, together with those in the legal professions, clerks, notaries, attorneys, and judges. Think also of health care, education, entertainment, information, food service, even soldiers and police. The church, too, had its own army of clerks involved in the management of what was rapidly becoming a chaotically complex entity. Since these persons were paid for their work, they were generally able to better their condition, and thus had funds to invest and hopefully to augment. Continuing the catalog of occupations, we can list others involved in the services in the cities, such as messengers, coachmen, stable keepers, cooks, barbers, washerwomen, cleaners, peddlers, and porters of all sorts of goods, not the least of which was water. They were poorly paid. And at a level below these were the abandoned and marginalized poor, the literal dregs of society, who made a living any way they could. Here, we find the chronically unemployed, beggars, drifters, criminals, prisoners, common prostitutes and their pimps, demobilized soldiers, war refugees, and economic migrants, plus the mentally and physically handicapped and the homeless. Vincent, to be sure, moved in all these levels of society. Apart from those living a truly isolated existence, all these persons from top to bottom of society lived within certain financial parameters, the fourth major structure we are considering. In rural France, many handled currency only rarely, living on the level of barter or payment in kind. The nobles and clergy could receive what was due them in taxes through cash, labor, or payment in kinds such as crops, animals, or finished products, such as wine or salted meats and fish.
In the cities, however, the nobles and clergy mainly conducted their affairs with cash, namely coins. Now, the idea of a standard of coinage uniform throughout the kingdom was not yet operative, since many entities, civil and religious, had the right to their own mints, hence the importance of money changers. However, to ease transactions and avoid the danger of carrying large amounts of heavy coins, letters of exchange grew in importance. That is, a merchant or a banker in one city could call on a trusted colleague known to him in another city to satisfy his debts, guaranteed by notarized letters, a service that entailed significant costs. Paper money was unknown in Europe, although at times letters of exchange would pass from creditor to creditor, serving as a preliminary to our banknotes. Savings banks did not exist in France, and for this reason, those with surplus cash turned to other means to increase their holdings. Some lent their money to the state, which issued bonds guaranteeing future income. Others invested in various commercial colonial enterprises, such as the Company of the East Indies, charged with the promotion of trade in Madagascar or in financing real estate and housing developments in France through the purchase of shares or mortgages. Those with less abundant means could invest in jewels or artwork or even buy annuities or pensions with the promise of regular future payment. The entire complex can be called incipient capitalism. Vincent's Responsibilities these were, then, some of the socio-economic structures in which Vincent lived. He had responsibilities for the various organizations that he initiated, and each one followed a somewhat different method of financing. Even a rapid reading of his correspondence will show that he was involved in a multiplicity of financial undertakings and was well aware of their complexities. The Confraternities of Charity his earliest work was the Confraternities of Charity, a parish-based group of charitable persons organized to help the needy of their parish. He founded the first one in 1617 in chatillon les dombes a town in the Archdiocese of Lyon. The charities came to be established in towns and cities alike, including Paris. Vincent stipulated that they should operate from free will offerings, often in the form of bequests. This meant that local charitable benefactors would be urged to give of their surplus as needed, and that the members would, if possible, pay dues. Cardinal Richelieu himself donated a sum to launch the confraternity in the new parish at Richelieu. In addition, the charities often received the right from municipal authorities to place collection boxes in public places, such as parishes and inns. The sisters or brothers of the charity were also allowed to solicit funds at the parish church after Sunday or feast day mass, as well as to visit homes in town for the same purpose. Living from donations alone is inherently unreliable in the long term. 
and the charities often found themselves in difficulties. Some failed through lack of support or even mismanagement of resources. Expenses could be high, since many confraternities had to support chapels for their use and had to house the sick and the poor, particularly transients, in small hospitals. To redress their deficits, some charities kept small flocks of sheep or goats to provide wool, milk, and meat for the indigent. The regulations Father Vincent designed for the charities demanded good financial management through regular reporting and checks and balances. In Paris, however, another kind of charity developed by 1634, not parish-based, but more general in scope. Its 40 to 50 female members, the, quote, ladies of charity, came from the nobility and helped in special cases, like the general hospital, the Hotel Dieu, disaster relief, help for indigent clergy and impoverished rural nobles. Because of their social status, these women could solicit alms, quote, in good houses and would supplement what they received with their own gifts. The second work was the Congregation of the Mission. Vincent de Paul had a quite different idea for the Congregation of the Mission, his second foundation. His confreres were not to work for a living. That is, they should receive no salaries for their spiritual ministry. He wrote in the Common Rules of the Congregation, quote, Our ministry on missions could hardly be carried out if we lived in total poverty, since missions are to be given without charge. In addition, he forbade begging or living off alms. With these three possible means ruled out, the only other way was to live off income from other sources. The Congregation of the Mission began in 1625 with investments. Monsieur and Madame de Gondy, Vincent's first great benefactors, were the true founders of the Congregation in the sense that they turned over to their chaplain, Monsieur de Paul, both cash and the promise of other income on condition that he invest the principal, quote, on land investments or established revenues, unquote. With this large sum of 45,000 livres, about $2.25 million today, he would be able to support himself and five or six of his earliest companions for several years in their work of giving missions, without forcing the country poor to pay for the privilege of being evangelized. Nevertheless, the missioners still had to eat, clothe and care for themselves, and travel. He explained, quote, Our situation is not like that of the mendicants. All they have to do is pitch their tent and they are established. But we, who do not take anything from the poor, need revenue. Unquote. As the congregation grew, new financial concerns demanded his attention. The first was the Priory of St. Lazar, the historic mother house of the congregation. When he accepted it in 1632, his community was only seven years old and numbered nine priests living with 14 brothers and candidates, one of the smallest communities in Paris. 
but St. Lazar was one of the largest, if not the very largest, ecclesiastical property of the capital. The previous community of canons who had lived and worked there reasoned that Vincent and his missioners would continue in some spiritual respects their centuries-old care for lepers. The relevant sentence of the contract for the union of St. Lazar to the congregation of the mission reads, quote, Since the revenues of the priory had been intended for the corporal relief and assistance of poor lepers, and since there were no lepers, it would be more normal and in conformity with the intention of the founders to apply those revenues to the spiritual assistance of poor people in rural areas far from the cities tainted by the leprosy of sin." Unquote. Their donation, however, came with several strings attached. Most buildings in poor condition would require extensive repairs. The contiguous farm and orchards, plus windmills and a quarry, would need workers. And the canons had a right to receive food, lodging, and annuities from their new proprietors. Added to this, Vincent was becoming the owner of St. Lazar's rental property, consisting of entire streets and their buildings in Paris, plus extensive farms and mills in the country. It is no wonder, then, that he had hesitated more than a year before accepting the priory. In any case, the income from all these pre-existing sources would allow the mission to continue. Owning St. Lazar, however, changed the congregation of the mission forever. At the beginning, only a few, all younger than Vincent, joined him to imitate Jesus, the, quote, evangelizer of the poor. Brimming with zeal and mortification, they were little concerned about how they lived or maintained themselves. But once he moved to St. Lazar and the congregation grew, Vincent found himself having to provide for his sick and elderly confreres, as well as for the novices and the students swelling their numbers. Besides, he incurred obligations for his missionaries outside France, such as in North Africa, Poland, Italy, and, most famously, Madagascar. As Superior General, therefore, he was responsible for the food, lodging, clothing, and medical care of his confreres, as well as supplies for churches and chapels and for the education of his junior confreres, with their needs for pens, ink, paper, and books. Travel expenses for the older missionaries were not insignificant nor were those involved in the administration of a growing enterprise. On top of all this, Vincent had to provide hospitality at St. Lazar, as well as at many other houses, for clergy and laity on retreat. And then there were the poor who came to the door in search of help. It is no surprise then that Vincent insisted on stable financial foundations for any new apostolate. And when he occasionally discovered that bishops were not honoring their commitments, he withdrew his confers. It is difficult to have a concrete idea of how much it cost to support one of his confers each year. However, Vincent reported that an average of between 300 and 400 livres would suffice. 
a comparison with U.S. dollars for the support of one Vincentian in the United States today is likewise problematic, but appears to amount to a factor of between 40 and 50 times the stated amount in livre. Where then did the funds come from for this complex undertaking? Land and its produce accounted for a major portion. Vincent remarked, probably as a result of meditation on the economic facts of his life, that the missionaries lived, quote, on the patrimony of Jesus Christ, on the sweat of the poor, unquote. Income from poor farm laborers flowed in not only to St. Lazar, but also to his other foundations. A second source was income from real estate, whether buildings or farm properties that he owned, managed, and leased to others. At times he shared this income with other beneficiaries, depending on the conditions of the contract. A third source was public services, such as tolls from bridges and mills, and especially from coach lines that carried both passengers and freight. The young King Louis XIV granted this surprising franchise to the mission, certainly with his mother's encouragement, as a charitable subsidy for Vincent's many works. In this case, he allowed a benefactor, the Duchess of Aiguillon, to lease these lines and apply income to various charitable works. The founder engaged, fourthly, in investments, particularly in municipal bonds issued by the city of Paris. Collection of future taxes guaranteed the dividends. He also enjoyed duty-free products, particularly the salt and wine destined for St. Lazare, a significant subsidy dating from long before the advent of the Congregation of the Mission. He received income, fifthly, from civil offices. He personally drew a state salary of 600 livres as chaplain general of the galleys, an office he began in 1619 before the foundation of the congregation and continuing it until his last years. The income went, of course, not into his pocket, but to support the works of the missionaries serving the galleys. Another civil office was that of the consulates in North Africa. He purchased these offices from the state with funds made available by the Duchess of Aiguillon. Named by him and approved by the state, the consuls served the interests of France in modern-day Tunisia and Algeria, which included care for Christian captives facilitated by the, quote, benefits, revenues, and emoluments that come within its scope." Unquote. A smaller source of income was a portion of the taxes paid for merchandise, salt, food, and wine from certain areas, as well as a percentage of income of notarial offices, such as those near the house of Richelieu. A similar source, sixthly, was ecclesiastical offices. These responsibilities, called benefices, entitled the holders to an income. Vincent often spoke against his confers holding benefices in their own name and managed to have the first General Assembly, held in 1642, decide that all the members would bind themselves by a simple vow never to seek any benefice. This extraordinary decision was apparently never implemented. Nevertheless, 
the congregation as a whole held several benefices, and they provided the income for many of its houses. For example, the Abbey of St. Maia in Brittany was assigned to the congregation, and the income from the Abbey's lands went to support the Vincentians in their apostolate of seminary education there. Several priories, smaller foundations with their own income from lands, tithes, tolls, and the like, supported other Vincentian houses. Hospitals also provided some income, as did a series of churches, chapels, and shrines. In fact, although Vincent did not want his missioners to engage in parish ministry, since that would keep them from moving around on missionary journeys, he needed the income from the parishes. Interestingly, it appears that in these parishes he stationed his confreres who, for reasons of health or even personality, were unsuited for mission work. Of course, the congregation of the mission also lived from revenues provided by legacies and other gifts and grants, including mass stipends. But these generally produced income from the means listed above, like investments in bonds, rents from lands, or public services such as taxes and tolls. The Daughters of Charity The financial design of his third foundation, the Daughters of Charity, was much different. In 1633, with Louise de Marillac, Vincent organized a group of charitable women at first to help in the parish charities of the Diocese of Paris. Their title in French, Fille de la Charité, or Servants of the Charity, accurately describes and explains their original function in relation to the parish charities. Quickly, however, they came to visualize their purpose independently of the parish charities. In 1646, Vincent described the ways in which the Daughters of Charity were supported financially. Those living in the home of Louise de Marillac received donations from charitable widows and others. Those at work in the parish confraternities were paid by the confraternities and supplemented their income by handwork done in their leisure time and even by alms from the widows, the king, and the Duchess of Aiguillon. Eleven years later, in 1657, the letters patent of Louis XIV approving the company of the Daughters of Charity added details regarding the sources of income. One, money granted by the king himself from his property at Gonesse in the outskirts of Paris, and an annual income from the Rouen coach line. Two, their own manual labor performed during their leisure time. And three, contributions from benefactors and alms. He failed to mention their surplus income handed into the mother house. Also, unlike nuns, the sisters did not have to present a dowry at their entry. The reality was, however, that the sisters lived primarily from salaries coming from public funds. We do not know much about the details, however, but the main lines are clear enough. To assure their services in parish charities, the daughters received funds from the charities, which in turn had come from the sources mentioned in the letter's patent. In the case of the hospitals, we are better informed since we can read the contracts that stipulate the means and sometimes the amount of their support. 
In Angers, for example, quote, they will be fed and furnished with all their clothing at the expense of the hospital and will be supplied with medicine and food if they fall ill. They will be considered members of the household and not paid workers, unquote. Many hospitals were founded in the sense that they had their own endowments, guaranteed sources of revenue that included public funds. For the sisters' special ministries, such as service to soldiers in military hospitals or even on the battlefield, state funds provided their support. Of course, at times, expenses outran income in some houses, and the sisters resorted to begging. Occasionally, they raised money by, for example, bringing orphan babies to Notre Dame in Paris on Sundays to excite the charity of the parishioners. Monsieur Vincent, in addition, urged them to live poorly for the love of those whom they were sent to serve. Toward the end of Louise's life, Vincent praised her skillful management of the finances of the company. They had little debt. A slightly different undertaking involved his three foundations together. In times of great need, such as civil war and invasions, the ladies, the missioners, and the sisters worked together and Vincent undertook financial organization through fundraising. It is very instructive to read the lengthy description given by Pierre Coste of Vincent's aid to the devastated provinces to the north and east of Paris. Evidently, the founder, besides being spiritual, was charming and persuasive, since he could coax financial support from people of means. We know some of the most important, beginning with Anne of Austria, the Queen of France. She reportedly gave a valuable diamond and some earrings to Vincent for his charities at a total value of 25,000 livres, or about one million U.S. dollars. Other helpers were the charitable Duchess of Aiguillon, the widowed niece of Cardinal Richelieu, and other wealthy men and women. One of the founders' most forward-looking methods was supporting the publication of news reports designed to promote charity in times of public calamities. Since Vincent did not compose or edit these letters, they do not figure in the collection of his writings, but his influence is palpable. Those that have been preserved offer a horrifying catalog of the miseries of his time, involving murder and mayhem, rape and pillage, descending even to cannibalism. In case we find this hard to square with prosperous modern-day France, the vivid contemporary engravings by Callot, an eyewitness, bring the human suffering to life. Vincent's Theory of Money and Its Management With all these funds coming into St. Lazare and his other houses, one might conclude that Vincent was living very comfortably and becoming wealthy in his own right. Certainly his needs were met. He probably continued to receive some income from family inheritance during his life. He had a home and garden, transportation, horses at first, later a borrowed carriage. He had servants, clothing, medical care, and reasonable food and drink. He enjoyed contact with the most influential members of society, such as royalty, members of the court, judges, academics, and particularly ecclesiastics, cardinals, bishops, nuncios, abbots, and the leading reformers, both men and women. 
However, like them, he also experienced financial embarrassments and found that his credit was sometimes poor. In those cases, he even considered, perhaps rhetorically, selling crosses and chalices to support his confreres in their needs. Although his biographer Abilie claimed that, quote, money was of no significance for him, unquote, this judgment has to be nuanced in view of Vincent's financial responsibilities. In managing money, his overarching principle was that his resources existed to serve the poor and that money was not a thing in itself to be hoarded. His sense of the vow of poverty for the congregation of the mission reflected the same beliefs. A member's personal income was designed to support the needy. It was the patrimony of Jesus Christ for his poor members. This is still the meaning of the Vincentian vow. To help maintain his ideas in practice, Vincent relied on managers and financial advisors, both members of the congregation and others, although we know little about the details. Quote, Far from being a bad thing to seek advice, you must, on the contrary, do so when the matter is of any importance or when we cannot come to a clear decision on our own. For temporal affairs, we consult a lawyer or some laypersons who are knowledgeable about them. For internal affairs, we discuss matters with the consultors and other members of the company when we think it appropriate. I often consult even the brothers and ask their advice on questions involving their duties." In addition, he had administrators to track and collect the income due him, often a complex and delicate undertaking. For example, some of his renters would sublease their building and then his rent collectors would find themselves blocked in trying to get what was due them. Managing the income from the coach lines must have been a nightmare, since he had to control its flow, care for the horses and equipment, guarantee the honesty of the agents and the like. Storing the goods paid in kind must have posed enormous problems at all points along the line of collection and distribution. Further, he needed help in managing his other employees, such as the servants in various houses, the farmhands and the stable keepers, to say nothing of supervising the construction contracts that he constantly entered into. He seems to have been somewhat embarrassed by the need for servants, as the following suggests. Quote, We cannot send you right now the brother you are requesting. I repeat my request that you hire a servant. We have some here in the kitchen and many in other duties. The Carthusians have several. And a Barnabite father was telling me just yesterday that they have the humanities in their colleges taught by outside professors whom they hire. It is very expensive to send brothers so far away, in addition to the fact that we have none who would suit your purpose." To add to his problems, many of his debtors resorted to legal chicanery to keep from paying. The mild-mannered Vincent preferred to avoid litigation, settling out of court, as we say. His maxim was that, quote, peace is worth more than all worldly possessions, unquote. But he also realized that to enforce contracts, he would have to go to court when all else failed. In this, he relied on advice from attorneys and regularly employed a firm of notaries. 
he reasoned that the income, after all, belonged to the poor, and his obligation was to defend not only his rights as superior general, but also the rights of the poor. One source of revenue that he had no control over was royal subsidies. His options were obviously limited. The concept of a guaranteed income from coaches, for example, was wonderful in theory, but difficult in practice. Since the king who granted the concession in the first place could always cut back on the percentages allocated to Vincent jointly with other communities. Also, to meet royal debts, the king occasionally needed to manipulate the income from bonds by changing the rate of return or simply by defaulting. Vincent's bad experience came to the surface in the following citation, quote, Since the income comes from a domain of the king, it is founded on quicksand and subject to frequent taxes, cuts, and surcharges, in addition to the rebates that have to be given to the farmers every now and again because they are prevented from getting their dividends, unquote. Interestingly, Vincent resorted at least once to using fluctuations in the value of coinage to increase his charitable funds. Quote, The saving will not be small for your poor if we can change the silver money given us into gold. There are 12,500 livres in silver money of rather poor coinage. Monsieur Chenevie will not be willing to give us coin for coin, I'm afraid. He will give us pistole for 12 livres there that we can get here for 10. Nevertheless, I have instructed our brother Louitre to find out about this in the morning. Unquote. But above all, he regarded it as an obligation to augment available funds and the lands that guaranteed them. Because of this difficult and unstable system, deficits easily arose, and Vincent often borrowed money. The philanthropy of his rich benefactors dried up in times of poor harvests or other natural occurrences, such as fires, storms, and floods. The cold winters and wet summers, typical of what has been called the Little Ice Age, further affected his ability to stay solvent, without even considering such man-made causes as war, vandalism, theft, and looting, all of which he endured. The practicalities of lending and borrowing money were very complex in Europe in his time. Canon law, drawn from a reading of the sacred scriptures, prohibited usury, that is, lending money at interest. French civil law made usury a crime as well. However, since civil and canon law allowed contracts of partnerships and contracts of buying and selling, several systems developed for obtaining funds and paying interest while avoiding the accusation of usury. For example, the person in need of funds, the borrower in our terms, would promise to sell income to a buyer, the lender, calculated equivalently at a certain rate of return, with the understanding that the buyer could also rescind the contract and thereby repurchase his money. Reminiscent in some respects of traditional Islamic practice, this method is evident in at least one document involving the buying and selling of income guaranteed by funds put up as collateral by Louise de Merillac. 
we do the same thing today, but use other terms. In all this, Vincent was acutely aware of his obligations to social justice. Although a strict employer and manager, his spiritual instincts led him to just wages and even to charity above what was due in justice. For example, he looked to the medical care of his workers and provided for them if accidentally injured on the job. He was prompt and faithful in paying his obligations. He practiced frugality and urged it on others. And, to maintain control, he insisted that the superiors of houses make no major financial decisions without the approval of the visitors or provincial superiors, and that these in turn obtain his permission. He took care to urge budgets, good bookkeeping, and regular financial reporting. These are simple matters, evidently, but they show the mind of a good manager at work. For Vincent de Paul, then, money was not dirty, something to be shunned. Rather, it was a God-given resource to promote charity. With his good sense, wedded to an instinctive goodness of character, he was able to capitalize on his peasant upbringing with realism, practicality, and simplicity, foregoing extravagant promises that he could not keep and tempering charity with justice. Although conscientious and forgiving, he could be exacting and careful in the direction of his efforts for the evangelization of the poor. In negotiations, he worked to get a good bargain, but was also discreet, and often called his confers to maintain secrecy about cases in progress. Unlike many of the clergy of his time, he was generous, overly generous, in the opinion of some of his confers. Quote, always the first to give, as Abilly reports. The first Vincentians feared that his charity would eventually bankrupt the congregation, bringing everything down. Vincent, however, had a deep-rooted trust in God's providence, but was careful not to tempt providence by inaction. Quote, I admit that we can expect something for providence, but we should not tempt God, who, having provided you with reasonable means to begin and carry on an establishment while observing the rule of religious poverty, does not want you to make a superfluous expenditure and then to entrust yourselves to his providence." Unquote. Vincent de Paul was a saint. That did not mean, however, that he lived outside the constraints of his time or remained oblivious to the social and economic factors that kept people poor. Those things he could not change. Instead, he applied his saintly character to managing well what divine providence gave him, and always looked at the abundant sums that passed through his large peasant hands as destined for the poor, those for whom Jesus had a special love. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Incension Heritage Podcast. If you have any questions, please send them to mission.depaul at gmail.com. Be sure to check out all the other Vincentian family resources on our website, mission.depaul.edu.